0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is The James Ossuary by Ben Witherington III. Have you heard about the controversial James Ossuary? An ossuary is a small coffin, often made of limestone, that the Jews used in the Second Temple period for the bones of their deceased loved ones. Someone found an ossuary with the inscription, check this out, James, son of Joseph, his brother is Jesus. Could this find be the actual ossuary of Jesus' brother James? Join world-class scholar Ben Witherington as he defends its authenticity. If Witherington is correct, this archaeological find is the best material evidence of early Christianity.
1: I was tempted to call this lecture, make no bones about it, it's James. (laughs) Has been said that archaeologists' life is in ruins. Well, there's some truth to that but this is more than just mere rubble. I hope that you will take some time this evening to come up and see the infant ossuary, Uh, that you have a very beautiful piece here from your own uh, museum here on this campus. It's uh, an ossuary for an infant. Only an infant's bones would fit in such a small ossuary, and I hope you will take some time to come and look at it. It's not different in um, general shape than the James Ossuary, but it's only about a quarter of the size. So what I want to do is give you a sort of comprehensive overview in regard to James and the Ossuary and some of the implications of this for New Testament study. So without further ado, how about James first? Now, I like this picture. You can see he was follically challenged. He's doing that comb over thing on you know the, the front. Here, this is one of the earliest uh, painted images of James that we have from the early Middle Ages. And he is always portrayed in much the same way that Paul is portrayed with this protruding forehead, which is a symbol of his cerebral capacity. Uh, So he's depicted as a a wise person, as a sage. And you can see he's carrying a document as well. according to tradition, the letter that he wrote. This is the ossuary itself. Um, I'm really thankful that you have this technology installed in time for all of this. This is really quite wonderful. Um, You can see that the ossuary itself is made out of rather poor quality limestone. If you look at the bottom, which is where actually the major crack occurred when it was broken in transit from Israel to Toronto last November. You can see all the pockmarked holes in the bottom of it. This was not a high-quality piece of limestone used to carve this ossuary in the first place. And Right off the bat, I can lay to rest one uh, particular thing. Ossuaries were used by all kinds of different people. During the Herodian period, uh, not just those who were well-off or even medium well-off, ossuaries were also used by various people of very modest means if they wanted to provide a special kind of burial for their loved ones. And certainly that's the case with James. Now I want to point out two other things while we've got this image up on the screen. If you will notice, there is a rim around the front face of this ossuary there's a little line can you see the chiseled line all the way around that is characteristic of herodian stones if you go today to the temple mount and look at the herodian stones in the so-called wailing wall or western wall of the temple mount you will see many stones with this same identifying herodian stone line there are a variety of things about this ossuary that make very clear when this was made and what kind of composition it was made of and what its nature is here is the inscription in more detail now what i can tell you about this inscription among other things is that the what is appears on the screen as the left hand portion of the inscription uh, is right in the middle of a place where there are various pits and even little holes in the face of the limestone. So it would have been very difficult for them to carve the letters as clearly, precisely, or as deeply as was the case with the beginning of the inscription. In addition to which, if this inscription, as is likely, was carved all at one time, you know what's going to happen when you get to the end of the inscription. This is where you begin to tire anyway. But in addition to that, we, after the close of the exhibit of the ossuary in Toronto at the Royal Ontario Museum, the, uh, I asked, uh, and Herschel Shanks asked for the curators of the museum to bring in scientists and bring in an electron microscope and investigate the ossuary in more detail before sending it back to Israel and they did this and they looked at every single one of the letters and in each of these letters is found the same minute metal flex from a same instrument. Whatever carved the first few letters on this ossuary also carved the last portion of the ossuary as well. It was some kind of copper or bronze tool that carved this and that one time." Here's uh, a better sort of uh, script. This is out uh, sort of handwritten um, rendering of this. And I want to point out a few things to you. Uh, you may not know Aramaic. That's okay. But you can still notice some things about this. Now I'd like to say to you that here's another important point. To my knowledge, and to the knowledge of Andre Lemaire, there has never been a forged ossuary before in the past. Generally, people forge documents, they don't forge coffins. Um, That's just not something people go around doing, uh, and especially Jews who have very specific beliefs about the sanctity of the dead and the uncleanness of corpses and all that sort of stuff. So it's highly unlikely that either a Muslim person or a Jewish person would have done such a thing. Furthermore, we know from antiquity that those who inscribed inscriptions on ossuaries were not professionals. It was normally done by whoever was the stonemason, if need be, or a member of the family. Uh, It's not a professional epigrapher or calligrapher or anything like that. And when you get a non-professional hand doing this, you are bound to get some kind of combination of formal and less formal script. This was exceedingly common. If you look at other ossuaries, you see this all over the place. Uh, It's a common thing. And so there really is nothing to the argument that the left-hand portion of the ossuary has more informal characteristics and the right-hand has more formal-shaped letters. It's... It's largely true, but when you actually look at the ion that begins the inscription near the very beginning, the the letter that looks like a Y, and you look again at the end or towards the end of the inscription, in fact, they're very similar indeed. Now, there are a lot of interesting features to this in regard to a linguistic point of view. I'll just point out a few notice that when you get to the Yosef, you see the longest letter that drags down to the bottom of the inscription. That's the Pe, or as we would call it, the P. That's a final Pe, and that only means that's the end of the word. It doesn't mean it's the end of the inscription. One of the things, if you've studied uh, the chat online and various of the websites that have discussed this, That's been said repeatedly by Miss Rochelle Altman, who is not an epigrapher and not an expert in Herodian Aramaic or any ancient script. Uh, She's a scholar uh, of some means in medieval illuminated manuscripts. One of the things she's claimed is that these first words, Yaakov bar Yosef, are original and ancient, but the rest of the script is not, and she argues this, uh, among other things, on the basis of the final pay on Yosef. Now the real experts in Aramaic and and epigraphy have weighed in on this and have said that's utter nonsense, that's just a final pay at the end of somebody's name. Uh, That's what that is. Uh, And there really is nothing to the argument that you have more formal script in the first half and less formal in the left hand hand half. You have both formal and informal characters in both portions of the inscription. Now, uh, here is the kind of place, a family tomb, that a body would originally be laid out. And really, we're talking a two-stage process of burial. First, Jews did not practice embalming. They did not know the arts that the Egyptians had. So what they would do is they would lay out the corpse, uh, place spices in the winding sheet, the cloth, Then they would lay the person on a slab in a family tomb or perhaps in a cave. In Jerusalem, it would take about a year for the flesh to desiccate. And after it had desiccated, then the bones would be collected and put in an ossuary not laid out flat like in a coffin today, but taken and simply carefully placed together in an ossuary. An ossuary only is intended to be long enough for the longest bone of the individual in question uh, to, to fit that, and then obviously the smaller ones would fit as well. So the James ossuary is only long enough to hold the adult femur, which is the longest bone in the body and the other bones would fit as well this ossuary only would hold the uh, the infant femur of of uh, of an infant and the other bones as well not laid out like a skeleton that you would see but simply placed together we'll talk about why in due course now this is the inside of that same family tomb and you can see that there are individual loculi That's the places where the uh, ossuaries would be slid after the body was taken off the slab, after it was unwrapped, after the bones were disassembled and placed in a box. Uh, These are the kind of holes where these ossuaries were found. This is, in fact, the inside of the tomb of Caiaphas, where the Caiaphas ossuary was found, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. This is the Caiaphas Ossuary, and you can see how very ornate it is. You can see the floral designs, the two large circles in which there are various small rosettes of various kinds, and the stenciling as well, not only on the bottom of this ossuary, but also on the lid of the ossuary as well. The James Ossuary is far plainer than this. Very simple and straightforward. unlike this particular one but here's the interesting part the inscription on most ossuaries most is not on the side facing us but would be on the end for example here is the inscription on the Caiaphas ossuary on the end of that beautiful ossuary here it is Caiaphas right there now you'll notice it's a scrawl This is nothing more than the person who placed this in the tomb uh, putting an identity tag on the box. This is not an honorific inscription, unlike what we find on the James ossuary, which is most certainly an honorific inscription done as carefully as possible and not just scratched on with a nail or a, a chisel at the last minute so you would know one ossuary from another. Now, this is the inscription on the Caiaphas actuary. Uh, It refers to this particular person, Caiaphas, the last word, who is uh, Joseph Bar Caiaphas. Uh, This is the family that was in the high priest's office throughout much of the New Testament, the first half of the New Testament era, and it was his great-grandson, or grandson, excuse me, Ananus who was responsible for the execution of James. So not only do we have Caiaphas who was responsible for sending off Jesus to Pontius Pilate, but we have the descendant of Caiaphas sending the brother of Jesus off to execution, the same family. Uh, Here we have an image of the Holy Family, uh, an important image. Because this is, according to the Orthodox tradition, what actually was the case. You have Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus going off to Egypt. And you'll see at least three persons trundling along behind. Who are these? These are the so-called brothers of Jesus. According to the Orthodox tradition, the brothers of Jesus are children of Joseph by former marriage not the children of Mary. Now, there's a problem with this, several problems based on the New Testament, but there's also a problem with this in terms of the ossuary because the ossuary inscription reads, Yaakov, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, if James was the son of Joseph, but not of Mary, then he is not the brother of Jesus who's only the son of Mary. That's a problem for the Orthodox tradition. Again, with the inscription which reads, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, this is a problem for the Roman Catholic tradition, both the tradition that they are cousins, James and Jesus, but also the Roman Catholic tradition that Mary was perpetually a virgin. What the New Testament itself suggests is that James and three other brothers and two sisters were in fact the children of Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. This was the headline in the Toronto newspaper on November 2nd when the ossuary arrived in Toronto cracked right through the second half of the inscription, which was just horrific. In fact, it came in seven pieces. I cannot tell you how horrified we were by this. The person who packed this packed it in bubble wrap and sent it in a cardboard box. Anybody who knows antiquities knows this is not how you ship a piece of antiquities. We may thank Brinks International Antiquities Packers for this gaffe. Uh, the ossuary was insured for $1.5 million, and I'm hoping that Odend got his money. Now, that's just images that I wanted to show you of the ossuary, but there's much more to tell you. And so now I want to talk to you in some detail about particulars. The James box. First of all, who owned it? It was owned by Oded Golan. He's an entrepreneur from Tel Aviv. He has an internet company, among other things. He's been a collector of antiquities since the 70s. He, as a boy, worked on digs with yigal yadin uh and uh, there's a famous story that he loves to tell about how he found a cuneiform tablet on one of the digs he was working on with uh yigal yadin and it had an alphabet on it it was the earliest representation of this particular alphabet so he's a 10 year old boy yigal yadin the leading archaeologist israeli archaeologist at the time saying well i'll trade you a nice lamp for this And Oded Golan is saying, no, this is more valuable. Thank you, sir, but I'll be keeping this. That was the beginning of his collecting. He now has over 30,000 pieces of antiquities, including 30 ossuaries, one of which is the James Ossuary. The significance of the find was first realized by the very first man you saw in the TV excerpt. And by the way, the TV show, the Discovery Channel special, We'll be on Easter Sunday night on the Discovery Channel, uh, and we'll present a lot of this material at that time. André Lemaire met Oded Golan in April of last year, and Oded Golan invited André Lemaire, certainly one of the two or three leading epigraphers, uh, to come to his house and see some of his collection. Now, I should say to you that an epigrapher is somebody who is an expert in ancient scripts, especially things inscribed on stone, but also various tablets and ossuaries and various other things. He's an expert in ancient scripts. Oded Golan had some things he wanted to show him. One of the things that he showed him was the Jehoash inscription, which also belonged to Oded Golan. Another thing that he had was in his tool shed. It was an ossuary. It was not even on the list of things to show to Andre Lemaire. But he showed Andre Lemaire pictures of all the other items that he had and said, is there anything, Mr. Lemaire, Professor Lemaire, that would be interesting to you? And Andre Lemaire saw the photograph of the ossuary with this inscription across the side, this very elegant inscription. And he said, Andre Lemaire said, my brain went tick. Could this be the Yaakov? son of yosef brother of yeshua that we know and so he said he contained himself and quietly said yes i think i'll be seeing that one please so he brought it out of the tool shed and put it on his coffee table picture andre Lemaire sitting down and drinking a good Seattle's best brew and pondering this inscription in the ossuary the long and short of it is that by the summer He had become convinced that this was, in all likelihood, the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus. And so it was sent off to the Israeli uh, geological survey people for testing. Now what do we know as a result of that testing? I will just give you a tease or a hint about that. There's a lot more in the book about it. But it's carved out of Jerusalem limestone, and not just any kind of Jerusalem limestone. It's carved out of Mount Scopus, Jerusalem limestone, so a very specific spot in Jerusalem where we know that many such items were, were taken and carved from that particular kind of limestone. Where was the box found? It was found in Silwan. Silwan is in the southern portion of the old city of Jerusalem. And it was certainly a place where there were many Jewish burials in the first century AD and afterwards as well. Today, Silwan is a Palestinian, poor Palestinian uh, village. Now, what do we know about the origins of this ossuary? Found by a Palestinian in Silwan, it was taken in the early 70s to an antiquities dealer. So you can probably picture this kind of scenario man is digging in his backyard shovel goes clank what does he find he finds an ossuary buried in his backyard now the reason he didn't alert the media is because then the israeli antiquities authorities would come and dig up his whole yard and under his house and then confiscate his property and never remunerate him and already of course palestinians and israelis don't get along So what's the smart thing he's going to do when he finds a coffin in his backyard which renders his yard unclean according to Jewish uh, law? Well, he's going to quietly pack it up and take it off to an antiquities dealer. And he sold it to an antiquities dealer for about $200. He had no clue what he had. The antiquities dealer then turned around and sold it to Oded Golan, who has this coffin fetish but he also had no idea what he had because he only paid five hundred dollars for it of course it's worth millions today carved out of jerusalem limestone it's an ossuary for the bones of one adult there were ossuaries big enough to hold several adults Uh, there were some only large enough for one adult, which is the case with the James Ossuary. And then there are infant-sized ossuaries as well. Now, what we know about the practice of oslegium or reburial in an ossuary, the technical word is oslegium, is that this was especially and almost exclusively practiced by Jews in a very specific period of time, the Herodian era, between about 20 B.C. and the fall of the temple in 70 A.D. We had a panel discussion here this afternoon, and we talked about why was this particular form of reburial practiced by Jews during this period of time. And I think it has something to do with the rise of the Pharisaic movement because, you see, the Pharisees, as one of their distinctive tenets of their faith, believed in the future bodily resurrection. And they based this in part on the famous text from Ezekiel, About them bones, them bones, them dry bones. You remember this story from Ezekiel? This is the first text that we know of, the earliest text, which seems to refer to a concept of resurrection, even though it's talking about the nation as the whole being spiritually revived. It talks about it under the aegis of talking about a physical resurrection. Jews who believed in the bodily resurrection believed on the basis of this text that you needed to keep the bones together and God would put new flesh on these old bones. And so, ossuaries were used and they paralleled the rise of the Pharisaic belief in resurrection. Now, what we know about Jesus and his followers is that they also, like the Pharisees, believed in resurrection. So it's not a surprise that Jerusalem Jewish Christians, friends, colleagues, brothers, and sisters of James might have buried him the very same Jewish way other early Jews who believed in a viable afterlife would have been buried. Now, our own James Ossuary, which I wish I had the replica model with me tonight But it's not going to be completed until the early part of next week, and it's going to meet me in Chicago. And I'm looking forward to going from airport to airport and explaining why I'm carrying a coffin around from city to city. This should be fun. Yes, sir, that's a box. Yes, sir. What's in the box? Well, nothing's in the box. Was there anything in the box? No, sir, this is a replica. What would have been in the box if it was the real thing? Bones? I see. It's a simple ossuary. On the back side, very faintly, we have two two circles in which are two very faint rosettes, like the ones you find on this infant ossuary right here. The inscription is absolutely in Herodian period Aramaic, not later Aramaic, not biblical Aramaic, but Herodian period Aramaic. We've had this authenticated by no less an expert than Frank Moore Cross of Harvard, also Joseph Fitzmyer from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Uh, my own Aramist on, on uh, Asbury Theological Seminary faculty, Bill Arnold, went with me, and we spent private time with the Ashura in Toronto. He also thinks this is certainly Herodian period Aramaic. The inscription reads, Yaakov bar Yosef Ahri Yeshua. Literally, that's Jacob, son of Joseph. His brother is Jesus. Very interesting. Now, here's another little note. Richard Baucom has pointed out to me and has now published in his recent article on the ossuary that the form of the name Yaakov as we have it on the ossuary is a form that only occurs in 5% of all the ancient jewish evidence of this name it's a particular apocopated form of the name in 95 percent of all its occurrences including in the biblical occurrences of the name it does not appear in this form now here's another fact that you may not have known yes yosef is a common name yes yeshua is a common name but yaakov only occurs in any form of the name in 2% of all our ancient inscriptions, texts, or ossuaries from early Judaism. Only 2%. And of that 2%, only 5% of that 2% have this particular form of the name Yaakov. Richard Balkum's conclusion is, this is further confirmation that this is not likely at all to be a forgery, for a forger would have gone and known only the biblical form of the name, the most popular form of the name. Another little piece of confirmation Yaakov by Yosef Ahui Yeshua. Here's another interesting fact this word Ahui in the Aramaic. Joseph Fitzmaier initially, when he looked at the inscription, said, something's not right here. I've not seen this form of the word brother before, because it's got this additional bit to it. It literally means his brother, his brother. But then he went and looked in the Rachmani catalog of Ossuary inscriptions, And he looked in the Genesis Apocryphon, he found three other examples where this form of the Aramaic word for brother is used in early Judaism. Confirmation, again, that we have a rare form of a word, a rare form used on this inscription. Whoever made this inscription knew his Herodian Aramaic. Not likely to be any kind of modern forger at all now I've already said something to you about where it was found what I didn't tell you is that that area is just littered with Jewish grave sites the truth of the matter about Jerusalem is it's a giant archaeological dig if we dug up everything in the center of the city of Jerusalem we would find a lot more things but most people who live there are not really keen on our doing that we're fortunate to have this one the ossuary James ossuary weighs 45 pounds was there anything found in it It contained dirt and bone fragments, no bones. Why not, I was asked. Well, there are a variety of possible reasons. According to early Christian tradition, shortly before the temple fell in 70 A.D., Christians, warned by a prophecy, fled to the city of Pella. Now, it's possible that the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, who had such great reverence for James, packed up the bones in a bag and took it with him. If you're going to flee, you're not going to run off with a 45 pound ossuary, but you might take the bones of your holy saint and the founder of your community with you. So that may have happened, we don't know. The other possibility is that the Palestinian who found this simply dumped the bones and took the box to the antiquities dealer because the antiquities dealer for sure didn't want unclean bones. We don't know exactly what happened to the bones. But what is and was in the box is dirt and bone fragments. Those bone fragments are now in a Tupperware container in Oded Golan's refrigerator in Tel Aviv. (laughs) Why, you may ask, ask me why? Well, because according to Jewish law, anybody who messes with the bones of an ancient Jewish person or a modern Jewish deceased person is guilty of defiling. The body of the deceased. So right now, Herschel Shanks and I are trying to figure out a way to quietly get this Tupperware container out of the country so that we may test the bones there is enough bone fragments to come up with a DNA analysis. Our battle plan is when we are able to do that, that then we are going to compare the DNA analysis from that to the blood samples and DNA analysis from the Shroud of Turin. If we have a match, then friends, we have a winner. We have authentication that the Shroud of Turin is in fact the image of Jesus as well as authentication that this James is the brother of the man on the shroud. That would be the trifecta right there. Stay tuned for further developments. It was tested by the Geological Survey of the State of Israel. As I've said, it's limestone from the Mount Scopus group excavated for ossuaries in the first and into the second centuries AD. The patina is the film, as, as Herschel said in the segment on the television special, a film which forms on the surface over centuries. Now, Kyle McCarter said to me, who was also in the film clip, he's um, an expert from John Hopkins in epigraphy, among other things. He said to me, uh, in the 70s, we didn't have near the technology that we have today in regard to forging things. He said it was impossible in the 70s to forge patina, to create a film that instantly grows on something that would make it look and have the appearance of age without being old. We know where this ossuary was. It was in the living room and on the coffee table of Oded Golan for many years. His mother cleaned it with Windex. Oded Golan, when he was questioned in Toronto, uh, said, was asked, well, how do we know it really has been there all that time? You could be lying to us. And he said, well, I have a list of my former girlfriend's phone numbers and tell ring them up and ask whether they saw it or not. And the answer is they did see it. And yes, it had the inscription on it the whole time. Very interesting. So the patina, the film in the crevices of the letters, is exactly the same as the film on the box. That's another sign of authenticity. It means that it was in a cave for a very long time, in a damp cave, and such a film grew on the box. Conclusion. No part of the excised, and it's not incised, it's excised. Rochelle Altman is wrong about that one as well. No part of the excised inscription is a modern forgery. Herschel Shanks first called me up in September, end of September. I write the New Testament articles for Bible Review, one of his magazines. He said, Ben, we've got a big one. I said, OK. He said, I'd like to send you some stuff by courier for your eyes only. See what you think. See if you think it's authentic. If you do, get back to me immediately. This is Herschel all over. You know, he gives orders like General Patton. Uh, And so he sent the stuff to me, and I looked at it immediately, and I phoned him back, and I said, yes, this is very significant. If Andre Lemaire vouches for this, he's probably the leading epigrapher in the whole world, then I'm prepared to entertain that this is what it appears to be. He said, fine, get on a plane October 21st. We're having a news conference in Washington, D.C. We're inviting the whole worldwide media to come. I said, well, you know, this is a biblical thing. I mean, how many people were really going to be there? Well, when we got to Washington, D.C. on October 21st, the room was twice as filled as this room is with media from everywhere, And it was just incredible. Uh, We did the news conference for about two and a half hours. I spent an hour explaining the possible New Testament implications of this. It went on and on and on. And there were questions, endless questions. So let's go over some of the questions. Why wasn't the significance of the find realized sooner? Because it was in the hands of a modern secular Israeli who doesn't know biblical period Aramaic. Especially, he did not know the meaning of the word ahui, which is in some ways the most important word on this inscription. His brother is. He did not know that word because it's not a modern Hebrew word at all. Secondly, when he was questioned about this and and was asked, "Well, well, couldn't you figure it out? This might be somebody significant. He said, I did not know that Jesus had a brother. Now, there's a good reason for that. The dominant traditions of Christianity in Israel are not Protestant at all. They're Roman Catholic and they're Orthodox, neither of whom believe that the brothers are children of Mary and half of whom, the Roman Catholics, don't even believe he's really a brother at all. They believe he's a cousin of Jesus. It's perfectly understandable how a modern secular Israeli not familiar with the New Testament would not have figured out the significance of this. Hence, it rested and moldered in his tool shed for a while. Could this be some other James? Yes, it could be. According to the statistical analysis that we have done, there may have been four other families, five possibly, at the time of 62 A.D. when James died, that might have had this configuration of names. But hold that thought. Here's what we know about ossuaries. Ossuaries normally only have the deceased person's name and then the patronymic, the name of his father. So normally an ossuary would read Yaakov bar Yosef, end of story, James, son of Joseph. Only two ossuaries from this whole period, of which there are some 800 ossuaries, Mention a brother. In both cases, the brother is somebody much more important or significant than the deceased. In both cases, the other ossuary that has the name of a brother, the name of the brother is Hanina. This may not ring any bells, but if you're a student of early Judaism, you will know that one of the three or four most famous Jewish teachers or sages or rabbis from the first century was uh, from this period was Hanina Bendoza. Hanina Bendoza. It appears that the other ossuary is also mentioning a famous rabbi, a famous sage. Nobody adds a name to the ossuary without it being an identification marker to make clear which James. This is, or which deceased person this is. His brother is Jesus. End of statement. Now, if this had been an ancient forgery, let's say after 70 AD, we might well have expected the inscription to read Yaakov bar Yosef, Ahui, Yeshua, and then the word Mashiach, or the word for Savior, or the word for Lord. But we don't have anything like that, and why not? because the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem knew perfectly well it was that Jesus, that James, and that Joseph. This inscription was not written for public consumption of those who were not members of the Jewish Christian community. Why don't we know more about the antiquities dealer? It's a good question, but this antiquities dealer still exists. He's still in business. And we have all agreed that he will remain anonymous. Otherwise, he will go out of business. Otherwise, he can't feed his family. Um, so we're leaving him alone. Oded Golan knows who he is. We can talk to him if we need to. He's not going to tell us any more than we already know. Is Oded Golan trustworthy? Well, this is a question that, you know, is hard to assess. Why would he bring all this scrutiny on himself and a lot of criticism in the Society of Biblical Literature, from the Israeli Antiquities Authority? Why would he bring all of this scrutiny on himself if, in fact, he had done something illicit, immoral, or unethical? It seems unlikely. And furthermore, if he had forged this in the present, It would not have the signs of antiquity that it has. It's been examined under the electron microscope. It's been authenticated in at least four or five different ways. Again, could this be some other James? It is possible, but it's unlikely in in light of the addition to the inscription, his brother is Jesus. Could brother mean something other than brother? Now, this is what various of the Catholics in Toronto and elsewhere have been asking me. In theory, this is possible. We all know that we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, and it has a spiritual meaning. But the problem is context. On an ossuary, there is no context. There is only one line of inscription, and one must assume that whatever son of means on this inscription is identical to what brother of means on this inscription unless there is some further explanation, which there is not. So the burden of proof must be on those who want to say, brother really means cousin, but son really means son. Furthermore, there was a perfectly good word for cousin, not only in Greek, but also in Hebrew and Aramaic, and it's not used here. Is the second half of the inscription, by another hand, I think we've gone over that. The configuration of names is important, it's not common. It's possible there were other families in Jerusalem with such a configuration of names, but the evidence is not forthcoming. It's an argument from silence to say that there was such. Now there is a uh, statistician in Jerusalem, his name is Camille Fuchs, and he has concluded that there was perhaps at most four families in Jerusalem in that time the A.D. 60s, which had that configuration of names. The mention of the brother's name on the ossuary makes this an extremely rare case, as I've already said. Only one other known Jewish ossuary which does so. Now, let's talk about some of the implications of the ossuary, in particular for early Christianity, for biblical studies, and the rest. The The dominant Pharisaic belief was that there would be a resurrection a bodily resurrection now what we know about early jews is that some of them believed in bodily resurrection like the pharisees and some of them did not the sadducees did not but this does not mean that the sadducees did not have a belief in the afterlife they believed in the afterlife as an a disembodied condition in a place called sheol in the old testament now that's not no belief in the afterlife It's simply not a belief in bodily resurrection. I don't think it's an accident that the rise in the practice of oslegium parallels the rise in the belief of resurrection, both in early Judaism and then after that in early Jewish Christianity. I think there's a reason for this, because the bones were believed to be important, ensuring certain hope and preparation for the resurrection. To this day, in Orthodox Judaism, we still have rabbis being buried on the top of the Mount of Olives waiting for the appearance of the Mashiach, Messiah, over the top of the Mount of Olives so they may be first up from the dead to greet him. If you go to the Wailing Wall today, or on Shabbat at least, you will hear some of them singing, we want Mashiach, we want Mashiach now. And one of the reasons they want him to come is because the great sages rabbis, and fathers from antiquity will rise from the dead and be with them again in the kingdom okay what is the importance of the james ossuary for the new testament point number one not a great shock to this audience i don't reckon jesus had brothers and sisters in particular He had four brothers and two sisters so how many children were there in this family seven four brothers and two sisters these were likely the children of both joseph and mary why do we say that we have only one story about jesus as a young man luke 2 41 to 52 we hear about jesus at about the age of 12 going up to jerusalem For what we might call his bar mitzvah with Mary and Joseph and no other children now if these children had been older children of Joseph by a previous marriage something the New Testament nowhere suggests why were they not on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem fact number two Mark 3 and Mark 6 Mention these other children in association with Mary and in the city of Nazareth. Now it's understandable how younger children, younger brothers and sisters would still be in the home and with Mary when Jesus is out beginning his ministry. It's more difficult to understand why older children who should be married and off having their own families were still tagging along with mom. By the time Jesus is close to 30 years of age. That is unless they were significantly younger children of Mary and Joseph. That means, if we are right about this, that there is a reason why, for example, we hear in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Galatians 2, that James is the brother of the Lord. The brother of Jesus. Brother means brother. And if that is correct, the theory of Mary's perpetual virginity must be considered dubious. Now what also we learn from this is that the Holy Family was devoutly Jewish. They spoke Aramaic as the inscription shows. They practiced Jewish burial practices. They were part of a very Jewish form of early Christianity, which you and I have continued to neglect. After all, the Petrine tradition led to Roman Catholicism. It is the Pauline tradition that led to you and me, Protestantism. What happened to James and the James gang? Lost in the sands of time. The head of the Jerusalem Jewish community was martyred. In AD 62, which is what this ossuary dates to, he was martyred, and eventually the Jewish community in Jerusalem slowly disappeared into the sands of time. What we also learn is that this form of early Jewish Christianity was vibrant and significant the first head of the first church was not Peter, it was not Paul, it was James, the brother of Jesus. In Acts 1.14, we hear of the mother of Jesus and the brothers there in the upper room with the disciples on Pentecost receiving the Holy Spirit. Very significant. But we also have heard early in the Gospels at John 7-5 that the brothers during the ministry of Jesus did not believe in Him. Very interesting. What changed that opinion? At the death of Jesus, what is the only family member that was there with Jesus? Only His mother stood beneath the cross. No brothers, no sisters. Did any family member bury Jesus? No. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus buried Jesus, in Joseph's family, too. The brothers and sisters did not believe in Jesus prior to the resurrection. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, there was a special appearance to James. Only three persons are mentioned by name in the list of resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15. A, Peter, B, Paul, and in between those two, C, James. It was Jesus himself who helped James make a U-turn and become a follower and not only a follower, the head of the earliest Jewish Christian church. James was a very significant figure in early Christianity. If you go back and read Acts 15, you will see that it is he who resolved the biggest early crisis around A.D. 50 in the church. It was he who held the church together between its warring factions of extreme Pharisaic Jewish Christianity that wanted everybody circumcised and everybody keeping all of the laws of Moses on the one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, there was Paul who proclaimed a law-free gospel to the Gentiles. How to keep these two things together? James found a way. Go back and read Acts 15 with fresh eyes and see how he was the great mediator in that big dispute in early Christianity. If we move forward to AD 62, we learn from the Jewish historian, not from Christian sources in the first instance, that James was martyred in AD 62. He was killed at the behest of the high priest. He was stoned to death. He was stoned between the end of the reign of the procurator Festus, who died in office, and before the coming of Albinus, before he could get there. Josephus says the high priest Ananus took this moment, this window of opportunity, to do away with James. He dragged him before the Sanhedrin, he was summarily condemned, and he was executed. We know precisely when this happened because we know what the interregnum was when that happened between the end of the reign of Festus and the beginning of the time of Albanus in Judea. So we can date his death very precisely. This means that somewhere in A.D. 62, James was laid in some kind of tomb on a slab. His flesh was allowed to desiccate. His bones were then taken and placed in an ossuary about AD 63, only seven short years before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, is there any reference to this in other sources? Any reference to the ossuary? There may be one. You see, uh, citing the second century Christian historian Hegesippus, says that James was buried not far from the Temple Mount, and he says, and his stele is still visible today. Now, we're used today to thinking of the word stele to mean some kind of stone inscribed monument, and it can mean that. But I went back and did a language study on the use of the word stele in Greek literature in general, and here's what I found out. Do you know what the various earliest meaning of this word is? It means an engraved or inscribed stone burial box. We find this in Herot- as early as Herodotus, and so I think the text in Eusebius can certainly be read, and his inscribed ossuary is still visible today. That would be in the fourth century A.D. I suspect it had become, become a spot for pilgrimage by early Christians. We know that the Holy Family after the death of James continued to have connections with the Jerusalem church. Jesus' cousin Simeon took over the leadership of the church sometime after that. Now what can this do for you and me? It could revive our interest in the mostly Jewish stream of early Christianity. We have neglected. Jesus and his brothers and sisters and his parents were all Jews, not Gentiles, not blonde-haired, not blue-eyed, not pale-skinned, ancient Near Eastern Jews. It should lead to a reevaluation of some of James's contributions both to the New Testament and to early Christianity. Go back and read the letter of James. One of the things that is most striking to me about the letter of James is how it has the very spirit and flavor of the wisdom teaching of Jesus. There are some 23 echoes of portions of the Sermon on the Mount found in the letter of James. In some phrases, almost verbatim quotes. This is not an accident. James drew on, rephrased, and re the teaching of Jesus and added his own wisdom or sapiential teaching. This is in some ways one of the most neglected portions of the New Testament. And in an age where we are desperately in need of wisdom, we need James's wisdom. T.S. Eliot once said, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Whereas the knowledge we have lost in mere information? Our nation today is in many ways spiritually adrift. We are in great need of wisdom. We live in a Jesus-haunted culture that is biblically illiterate, where almost anything passes for knowledge of Jesus. We also live in a skeptical age where people's spiritual birth certificates are from Missouri. They want you to show me. Well, here we have the ossuary. We have the earliest extra-biblical evidence that Jesus and James and Joseph existed. We need to reassess the importance of all of them. I think finally this find gives us a fresh opportunity for a fresh round of Jewish and Christian dialogue in which both groups recover an important part of their historical heritage. Most of all, I think, it gives us an opportunity to see Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly day by day. The earliest followers of Jesus paid for their faith with their lives. If anyone would come after him today, let them take up their cross and follow the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Thank you very much. Now I'm perfectly happy to take questions and I am just ask that you come to the microphone and speak clearly so everyone can hear them. So don't be bashful, this is your big chance.
0: I was just wondering. Um, you said that James' name was very, very different mm-hmm. from the majority, which shows it's not a forgery. Right. Is there early church um, or Christian communities that use the same name for James? And if it's not the same, how come that name wouldn't have been found in the early Christian community? And in the antiquities dealer who sold it to the gentleman who had it, why would he lose his job if he were his name was revealed?
1: Because the Israeli antiquities authorities would descend on his shop confiscate most of his wares, especially if they expected that they came from unprovenanced places and he would be in deep trouble. That's the bottom line. So that's the answer to the second question. The first question is more difficult to answer. As you know, we have all kinds of Yakult's and the name really is Jacob. We come by the I didn't say this, and I should have said, we come by the name James because of the medieval Latin permutations and the Romance language combinations that led to Yaakov Mus from Yaakov Bus, and then in turn to Jaime as in Spain, and then in English, James. So the real name of the brother of Jesus is Jacob, Yaakov. The real name of the son of Zebedee is Yaakov, not James. That's the modern anglicized English form of the name and since we have the name Jacob we don't need to call it James. So this is one of my pet peeves you know. He's named after the
0: patriarch.
1: Uh, I think the the thing to say about the form of the name Yaakov is that it probably was used by early Christians. We just don't have any other extra biblical evidence of it on inscriptions that's all. It's It's an argument from silence. Other questions. I was wondering if you attributed the uh, the tragedy that took place with the delivery to Toron- Toronto as any sort of did you draw any spiritual meaning from that or any sort of mystical thing from that, or was it just bad, bad bubble wrap? <laughs> it was bad bubble wrap. Um, no, I, I really didn't. But of course, you could draw a lesson from that and which it would would be. That we're not called upon to venerate holy relics, but certainly we'll take any signpost or sign that points us to Jesus. Yes, sir? Have you or anyone else made a formal reply to that uh, article by the other professor? Because uh, as soon as that came out, it hit the Jewish press everywhere that it was a right, forgery. So, right. mm-hmm. uh, we In the book, you will find our response to Rochelle Altman. Uh, Herschel Shanks has been especially on the trail of that and since his provenance is the authentication of the artifact I've left that to his part of the book but we have even more evidence now. I will also tell you that my colleague Amy Jill Levine went and inspected uh, Rochelle Altman's credentials and her master's thesis and trust me she is no expert at all in epigraphy. She knows something about the painting of illuminated manuscripts in the middle ages She is an absolute hoax in claiming that she's some kind of epigrapher. That's absolutely untrue. Why would it be so difficult
0: to to get a piece of bone from the refrigerator of your friend? Like stick it in your pocket or something on the way out.
1: (laughs) Yes, I quite agree with that. (laughs) The difficulty of course now is the world situation and we don't want to take any chance of having this confiscated or lost or anything like that. And so uh, we're waiting for a propitious moment and we're probably going to wait until after the Israeli Antiquities Commission finishes studying the ossuary again. It's our plan if possible to bring the ossuary back to the United States and, and send it on tour to various museums, and then I'll be going around to museums as well as Louisville Baptist Seminary and other places like that. That's the hope at this point, and, and when the ossuary is released, uh, when there is a propitious moment and where things calm down in the Middle East again, then one of us is going to go and collect that stuff and quietly bring it home. Um, hopefully we won't put it in our refrigerator and it be mistaken for leftovers or something. What was the general response at the SPL? Well, it depends on which panel discussion you went to. If you went to the one in the ROM Museum, uh, the response was respectful and, um, you know, very helpful in many ways. There were some good and probing questions raised and issues. Uh, The SPL panel was more like a three-ring circus with Eric Myers of Duke making some pretty scurrilous Uh, remarks about Oded Golan and uh, really kind of having a not very subtle attack on Herschel Shanks himself. Uh, The concern of Eric Myers was with unprovenanced artifacts, that is artifacts that are bought from antiquities dealers rather than found in the ground. The truth of the matter about that is that many if not most of the most important um, finds from antiquities. Have been bought on the antiquities market. They have not been found in the ground, including most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were bought on the antiquities market. So the question is, are we going to ignore the materials that are on the antiquities market simply because we're not absolutely certain where they came from, or are we going to analyze them and study them? And I think really that's Hobson's choice. There's no choice but to study and analyze them. I wanted to tell you how much I appreciate your, your comment about um, the importance of anything pointing to Jesus as a Messiah. Right. And I want to agree and second that. So based upon that statement, I have a question. If you have already in the past or possibly anticipate using this as a stepping tone or as a witness to any of your Jewish colleagues to pointing them to the true Messiah. Of course. And actually, um, that's one of the reasons I've written this book with Herschel Shanks, who is a Jew. Uh, It's also one of the reasons why I'm now working on on a book called One Jesus, Two Faiths with Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish New Testament scholar from Vanderbilt. Um, It it is part of my own ministry to speak to Jews about Jesus and um, I'm happy to have an occasion to do that in a non-threatening way. And I would just like to take a moment to ask for all of you to remember me in prayer. This is the beginning of a very long odyssey for me over the next two or three months. I don't know what will come of it. I know that the world is in turmoil, and many people will overlook this. But there are unique opportunities for people to make a connection with Jesus through this. And I would just ask that you, uh, Covenant, pray for me and with me through the next two or three months that I might be a good witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, to me, the most important part of all of this, more than the historical information. Other questions?
0: I wonder um, how optimistic
1: are you, or are you very optimistic, or what makes you optimistic about the correlations that you think you'll find between the bone fragments and the Shroud of Turing? Oh, it's just a tantalizing thing, okay. you know. We don't have any idea at this point, but what we're going to do is leave no bone unturned. You know, we are going to pursue all the possible angles here and rule out all that we can rule out. I will tell you one interesting thing, and that is that the blood samples on the shroud are very interesting. They have some abnormal features to them, one of which is that, you know, when you have a person conceived by a man and a woman you have this issue of XY chromosomes, right? But what if you have somebody conceived only of a woman without help from a male human being? Then what? Some of the peculiarities in the chromosome analysis of the blood on the shroud are very interesting and so we'll be interested to see what we get from the DNA of the bones compared to that. So stay tuned. Yes, sir.
0: Do you think that this is going to open up a gold rush of uh, kind of looking at other ossuaries and finding maybe even other important, and also uh, do you,
1: was it common for just males or were females also uh, placed in ossuaries? Everybody was, m- women and men, and there are family ossuaries that, where you have husbands and wives. But we know of all the ossuaries that are currently extant, and we've already scoured the inscriptions, and the only other one that's like this that mentions the brother is the one with Hanina on it, and it's still being studied. And we're not absolutely sure of a correlation with Hanina Bendoza, but it's certainly very possible. Um, What we do know, what's interesting, which Richard Baucom has demonstrated, is that any time any kind of thing is added to an inscription beyond the name and the patronymic, then it's trying to identify the deceased with somebody else important. For example, we do have some ossuaries that say things like son, so so-and-so, son of so-and-so, uh, the servant of Queen Adiabine. Okay? Now that identifies the deceased with an important person. So we have a few ossuaries with that kind of inscription, okay? Uh, some tell of the occupation of the deceased, which identifies that person more particularly uh, from others who would have the same name. So we know that the function of that sort of additional part of the inscription was to make clearer who this particular deceased person was in relationship to some important thing or important person. That's how those additions functioned. Uh, could you rehearse just a little bit of the intra-Roman Catholic dialogue that's uh, ensued because of the Adelphos Ach yeah. language here? Right. I know that Some Roman, some. Well, uh, you know, there's been a lot of different kinds of discussion in the Jewish community. Uh, Joseph Fitzmaur says, "Brother means kin in some kind of vague way." So he sort of falls back on, no, it doesn't mean cousin, but it means some kind of kin in a vague way. My response to him is, show me the evidence. Where does brother have that kind of vague sense? Uh, And more particularly, the burden of proof is on him to demonstrate that it would have such significance on an ossuary. An ossuary is something that does deal with people's blood relationships, you know. Professor John Meyer from Notre Dame says, if this is authentic, then it's, in his own words, the last nail in the coffin of Jerome's cousin theory. I thought that was a very nice way of putting it, and he's right about that. And so there's, and Andre Lemaire is a, a French Roman Catholic. He's the one who says brother means brother. So much the worse. What I would say for just for you to think about is that. Whenever we add something to the Word of God that's not true, God is eventually going to subtract it. That could be happening.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening and check us out online at restitutio.org where you can find an archive of all the podcasts as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.